Hey all, this week we're playing an episode on women's professional sports. Originally, this piece aired on the SI Vault podcast feed in 2016. I'll be back at the end of the podcast to give you a little update on what's happened since then. So without further ado, enjoy. Gals play ball also. They're getting in trim for the opening of the Powder Puff League. Now aren't they the picture of loveliness? <laughs> Funny, isn't it, Freckles? When the girls got down to earth, they still made news. Northwestern Ohio was the center of a wave of football enthusiasm, and the gals played it regulation all the way. Bone-crushing, earth-shaking scrimmages with free mud packs. Well, it's one way for a girl to receive a pass. I, if I was a lady player, I'd go down every, every night on my knees, and thank God that the Roger Federer and the Rafa Nadal for because they've carried this for. I think the, um, the WTA have a handful, not just one or two, but they have a handful of very attractive uh, prospects that can assume the mantle. How far have we come? In the middle of the 20th century, American women were expected to be homemakers. They powered the baby boom, becoming caricatures of the perfect domestic goddess on primetime shows like Leave it to Beaver. Well, it's sort of traditional, I guess. Uh, you know, they say a woman's place is in the home, and uh, I suppose as long as she's in the home, she might as well be in the kitchen. Sports were firmly outside of the kitchen, and even when girls got onto the field, they were leered at as curiosities, gimmicks, and objects. It's a new century. But there are only a handful of successful women's professional sports leagues, while organizations like the NFL, NBA, and MLB rake in millions of dollars. Sport event managers like former Indian Wells Tennis Garden CEO Raymond Moore still don't respect women's ability to earn, even as powerful female athletes like Serena Williams outdraw many of the men. Even the widely successful U.S. women's national soccer team can't get out from under the shadow of their male counterparts. It's a, not a complete nonsense that the US women's national team players are played 1,350 pounds for a win, um, and the US men's national team players are paid 5,000 for a loss. So by that definition, US soccer is paying its male national team players more to lose than it plays its national women's team players to win. But women refuse to lose, even if a win gets them less than it should. SI Vault presents Leagues Apart, the battle for women's professional sports. I'm Harry Swartout. This is SI Vault Presents. At the turn of the 20th century, women began to take power. They pushed for the vote, grabbed male-dominated jobs during the First World War, and even began their own professional sports leagues. In 1895, UK women founded the British Ladies Football Club, and soon, women's soccer picked up steam. 
shortly after World War One, um, particularly between 1918 and 1921. The crowds for women's football just grew and grew, with a high point in 1920 of 55,000 at uh, Goodison Park, with a further 15,000 people locked outside. And this is really what led to the ban on women's football by the Football Association and the Football League. That's Jean Williams, sports historian at De Montfort University in the UK. Britain banned professional women's soccer in 1921 because they were drawing too many fans and becoming too powerful. Across the pond in America, women could still legally play professional sports, but societal expectations changed the object of the game. Some of the things that held back women's leagues in the United States was based around very gentlewomanly ideas of amateurism. Although women's soccer was um, widely participated in, in the, the many women's colleges, the principals of those women's colleges thought that, that you had very, very polite forms of amateurism because what was thought to be important was that Young girls were participating in sport, but not necessarily ever so interested in out-competing her sister. What society did want from sport was physically fit women. And as women trained their bodies with athletics, the media took notice. One of the other things that is really noticeable is the fascination with women's bodies and how increasingly sporting dress reveals those bodies. And there's a very famous photograph of the four by 100 meter freestyle relay team, the British team who win the gold medal in the 1912 Stockholm Olympic Games. And these four young women are wearing silk swimming costumes and were of such fine silk mesh that they could pass through a wedding ring. But no one thought to, to actually give them any kind of sports bra or any kind of coverage over their chests. So there's quite a famous photograph taken after the um, competitions where, where their nipples are clearly visible. Between World War I and the 1970s, there were still few professional outlets for women's sports. Women shied away from athletics because of the difficulty in making a living in the business, which in turn decreased the talent pool and the quality of the leagues that did exist. All that changed with Title IX in 1972. Title IX was an unintended um, education act that um, entitled women to the same kind of rights as young men in colleges. And what that did unintentionally was to create a sort of sporting rights, that, that money had to be diverted to women's sports just as much as to men's sports. Now, girls had access to athletic scholarships. Like men had been doing for years, women used sports to secure a college education, broadening the female talent pool for potential professional leagues. Well, I was saying, I mean, I was blessed and lucky to have the opportunity to play for one of the greatest coaches ever in that Pat Summit. And, you know, I know that every single day that I went in, the expectation was high and, you know, just the way she coached us, the way she treated us, it was to prepare us for that next level. And so, you know, having a great coach like her and having somebody on my side like her, um, you know, prepared me every single day. That's Tamika Catchings, 
WNBA legend, and author of Catch a Star, shining through adversity to become a champion. Being trained for the big leagues was the first part of the puzzle for building successful women's sports. Next, somebody needed to take the plunge and start a league. But I was in seventh grade when I made my first goal that I was going to play in the NBA and I was going to follow on my father's footsteps. The WNBA came around my freshman year in college and then my goal changed. You know, no longer did I want to play in the NBA, I wanted to play in the WNBA. And you know, that was something that I really focused every single day. The WNBA capitalized on an already established NBA audience. For sports without a built-in audience, a seismic event could unite a base of bandwagon fans and will market for a new league. Second time the United States has won the Women's World Cup, and Brandi Chastain gets the game winner in the PK. Fervor surrounding America's win in the 1999 Women's World Cup galvanized into a professional league in 2001. The Women's United Soccer Association folded three years later. But another league took up the mantle. And when that league folded, another league. Since the women took home the 99 Cup, there's only been four years without a professional soccer league in America. Finally, the media had to spread the word. Up until the early 2000s, men's sports dominated the primetime markets on TV. So women's sports has taken to the internet, which has been both a blessing and a curse. Here's SI media writer Richard Deitch. The idea that there are so many places now that women's sports can be found is both good and bad. It's good in that essentially everything now should have a home in terms of distribution. The downside, of course, is that with so many outlets and with so much inventory, the inventory that's going to be chosen for the places that get the most eyeballs, generally speaking, are male sports. But now is a special time in women's sports, where breakthroughs and strides just keep on coming. The last couple of years, it's really been the year of women. You watched soccer team last year, Serena Williams, and I mean, the hockey league that started, and there's a lacrosse league that started. I mean, tennis has been around, soccer has been around, the WNBA, and now this year coming up, we have the Olympics. I mean, there's just a lot of positive vibes, you know, so just being able to have more opportunities. Nothing. Empty net still, Duggan against Decker on the faceoff with 5.7 to play. Controlled by Zach, two seconds to go, time runs out, and Boston takes the Isabel Cup. The National Women's Hockey League finished up its first season in 2016. The NWHL is the first North American Women's Hockey League to actually pay its players. In a year of firsts, the NWHL is actually using a tried-and-true method to forming a great pro sports league. Keep it small. Here's Danny Ryland, commissioner of the NWHL. At the end of the day, we're not looking to sell out Madison Square Garden. We're playing um, at venues that average around 1,500 seats. We're, all, we're a busing league. We have teams in Boston, Buffalo, Connecticut, and New York City. And 33% of all USA hockey registration is comprised in the Northeast. Naturally, that's going to be the fan base we're tapping into. By keeping the league regional and cost low, the NWHL is following in the footsteps of its older brother, the NHL. The NHL started with six geographically close teams. The NWHL narrowed it down to only four and is using built-in fan bases in the middle of New England, a hockey hotbed. Fans migrated naturally to the league. 
when we first launched, that was a lot of the feedback we received is, oh, I, there wasn't a league like this already? And, oh, no, this is the first? Oh, well, awesome. Like, let us know how we can help. We're so excited to support. And uh, so, yeah, the hockey community was definitely ready for this. At the same time, fans are used to super powerful leagues that have been around for decades. Unlike the finely oiled machinery of the NFL or NHL, the NWHL had some blips. A flurry of jersey purchasing briefly caused the NWHL to shut down orders to catch up with demand. NWHL tickets didn't go on sale until two weeks before the first game. It's a work in progress. Sometimes it's a lot of pressure from the media as well. It's, you know, why are these women in buses? They were in buses in, in college and they were in buses at the NHL level. I mean, even as of, you know, maybe a decade or so ago, they were busing further than they may have liked to. Yeah, so it's all about that fan patience and the media patience and realizing that this is a huge first domino that is falling and, you know, there's so much more that is going to come um, and we're going to evolve just like every league evolves and you know those things take time. Several dominoes ahead of the brand new NWHL is the gold standard for women's professional sports, the WNBA, which is celebrating its 20th season in 2016. The WNBA used established NBA fan bases and resources, and the league's longevity has begun to show dividends in the product. Well, I mean, we're celebrating 20 years, and that says a lot. So, I mean, for us to be sustainable for that long, and now these players are having the opportunity to literally, they're born, and, and they have something to dream, they have something to aspire to be, and they have the WNBA to to look at as far as being a goal of those from a young, young age. And so, you know, you see more and more young girls practicing and working to hopefully one day fulfill their dreams of being in the WNBA. But the WNBA is careful not to step on the NBA's toes. Seasons take place during the summer and fall so that NBA games and WNBA games won't go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. For women's leagues, it's a delicate balance between being too different and not different enough from the men's leagues. Do we want to get creative and find other ways to be innovative and make the game day experience better for the fans? Yes, um, and that's one of the blessings of being a new league. Um, but as far as the fundamental rules of the game, we're not looking to change those anytime soon. Uh, and to be honest, I don't think our fan base wants us to change them anytime soon. Uh, majority of our fans are hockey fans. They're going there to watch the best women in the world play hockey. But the burden of building a successful women's professional sports league can't be placed squarely on the leagues themselves. In an era of 24-7 news and sports coverage, there has to be somebody on the receiving end of these games. And now, more than ever, the media is ready to pick up the call, as long as you've got the stories. You do ask yourself as a sports media person, is there any role here for you in terms of an advocacy, if nothing else, in terms of the publicity of those sports? But that does counter what journalism is. It's supposed to be independent and objective, and you're not supposed to be a promoter and you're not supposed to be a publicist. So I think you have to approach women's sports in the same way you'd approach men's sports. You're looking for the best stories within the sport. You're looking for people who have interesting things to say. You're looking to spin or wield a narrative about whatever is in front of you or whatever larger story is in front of you. And it's not just the volume of coverage that needs to improve. The condescending, cute coverage of the newsreels needs to give way to thoughtful journalism. And most importantly, the media needs to try and avoid commenting on women's appearances and bodies as separate from their athletic prowess. 
You know, there's always a sexualized element to women's sports, and not necessarily because those women's sports are putting it out there. It's because when men, as a general rule, watch women's sports too often, there is there's they're commenting on looks and attractiveness as opposed to quality of play. That's gotten a lot better as we've headed forward because I think more younger men are just used to women's sports in general. A lot of them are raised by women only, and I think there's probably more of a respect factor there. Far more women in the press in terms of the sports press, so I think that changes the language and the nomenclature. But the reality exists today that there are a lot of people, and certainly a lot of websites, who can um, can oversexualize women in athletics for page views. And again, that's not to say that sex isn't used by both men and female to sell sports, but you just hope that even when that examination happens, it's sort of done in a thoughtful and intellectual and smart way as opposed to like the lowest common denominator stuff, which is very easy and very easy to get page views. Lowest common denominator aside, the conditions for a successful women's professional sports league has never been better. But despite their momentum, neither the WNBA nor the NWHL have yet to turn a profit. For that, they'll need investors. The potential for a women's sports market given the amount of women in the United States in particular, is just, it's so potentially lucrative. No one has figured out how to tap that market yet perfectly, but the market's gonna be there. And the market certainly will be there as well with women of color as this country gets more diverse and this demographic shift. So the only thing I would add is, I think there's gonna be some smart companies who are gonna take a long-term bet on women's sports. They're gonna cover it for a long time. They're gonna take their sort of viewership and metric lumps for a little bit. But I think that's going to pay off 20 years down the road because, again, the more you look at society, girls are getting involved in sports at a younger age, and eventually I think these girls not only are going to play, but they're going to watch and they're going to read about women's sports. It may not be now. It may be a decade or two down the road, but women's sports will only continue to get better, their markets bigger, and their case stronger to be respected just like the men. But thanks to today's fledgling leagues, the next big sports superstar that will carry women's leagues to new heights may already be in the stands. Seeing those young girls and young boys, you know, wearing your jersey and representing 24, um, it's a really cool and allows our young girls more opportunities. And I think you know, 10, 15 years from now, that's when it's it's really special because first game of the season, there was a little girl in Buffalo who was holding up a 2027 first round draft pick sign. And that's when it kind of all made sense. I mean, I hope that we see her and we can reference that, that photo and she can tell us that Kelly Stedman was her favorite player. She played for the Buffalo Buttes and, and you know, the, the interview process with, with her will be um, a special one to, to listen in on. Since this episode originally aired, there's been some good and bad news. The U.S. women's national soccer team is still fighting for equal pay, but signed a new bargaining agreement for increased pay and better treatment. The NWHL is still paying their players, but was forced to cut salaries in 2016. On the bright side, the CWHL, or Canadian Women's Hockey League, announced it's also going to pay its women, at least in some form, for the 2017-18 season. 
Thanks goes out to Gene Williams, Tamika Catchings, Danny Ryland, and Richard Deutsch. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Next time, we'll be back with a brand new episode. See you then. Thank you.